Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 6th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary, and I hope that all of the members of the tribe who are listening to me had an easy fast and a meaningful fast. I myself had too much coffee at the breakfast and then was basically up all night, so I'm a little punchy. And so uh, it was wonderful breakfast. Thank you to the Bregmans for my breakfast, but I, but basically... I'm a wreck. It's not their fault. It was delicious Dunkin' Donuts coffee in one of those boxes. I love those boxes. Those box coffee things. What an innovation that was when they when that came when that came to the fore. It's like it's like better than, you know, the iPad. It's they're so great. But but too much coffee after like, you know, 36 hours of no coffee it wasn't good. Anyway, so uh, join me in, uh, in in saying hello to my colleagues, uh, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, media commentary columnist and AEI fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. What a mess. What a mess we are in. Uh, I believe that... Um, uh, revenge uh, being a dish best served cold. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, has just served some pretty cold revenge on the Obama-Biden administration and on uh, and on Joe Biden for uh, trying to make hay out of his uh, his behavior during his campaign. Uh, of course, uh, Biden went to Saudi Arabia this summer, met with Mohammed bin Salman and did him the uh, incredible honor of giving him a fist bump. Um, the fist bump being um, an implicit message that he was not going to hold uh, Mohammed bin Salman accountable in particular in any particular way for the murder of Adnan Khashoggi the Saudi journalist propagandist um, who was killed at the uh, Saudi consulate in Turkey uh, in exchange for Saudi Arabia uh, sending, uh, you know, opening the oil spigot uh, to counter the uh, rise in oil prices due to the Soviet invasion of Ukraine. And he did so for a while. And then apparently yesterday, uh, OPEC plus, which is OPEC, and Russia, I guess, is there more than OPEC and Russia? Maybe Venezuela. I don't know who's. I don't know who. No, not Venezuela. Anyway, OPEC Plus decided to um, uh, uh, restrict its uh, its oil production, um, and I would say that the administration's response uh, verges on um, panic and uh, a sense that uh, something absolutely terrible has happened to it politically. Um, because uh, not only did it um, uh, immediately say it was disappointed, not only uh, did, uh, you know, have Democratic officials, and no, we'll get to this in a bit, Democratic uh, congressmen are now, like, saying we should, like, pull all of our, pull all of our forces and our weaponry out of Saudi Arabia in protest of the fact that uh, oil prices are going to go up. But, um uh, there's talk of um, uh, lessening sanctions on Venezuela, on 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 uh, Venezuela, where of course Maduro, the the communist uh, president, is uh, in, unjustly held on to power, um, uh, simply to keep. Oh, oh, and the release of 10 million more barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, something that exists um, 
not to deal with rising oil prices, but with actual oil embargoes of the sort that we saw in the 1970s, in case we have this reserve, in case something really catastrophic happens and all of our international oil supplies are are halted. That's not what's going on here. This is simply a kind of price support uh, that's that's being done. So I, w- I would describe this as a kind of panic, and the panic is about the midterms, I think, pretty much, and about the effect that this will have on inflation as, as, as oil prices rise. I don't know, people, nobody even knows how much they'll rise. 15 cents, 30 cents, 45 cents, something like that. Okay, so. But it's not just a, a panic about uh, politics, I think. Um, the, the Biden administration finds itself in a, in a really bad position in terms of its ability to project power in, 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 abroad. Um, and it's, it is a position of its own making have to say, Biden came to office demonizing the Saudis, waging war on U.S. fossil fuels and determined to get back into uh, an Iran deal uh, on uh, Iran's nuclear program. All of this has worked against it in terms of Saudi Arabia as an as a vital energy ally and um, in terms of uh, U.S. energy production. Should a time of crisis arise? You know, let, 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 let's pull back even further, because on the one hand, you know, I, I've said this before, but if you had told me at some point, you know, in when I was in college, uh, writing my senior thesis with Daniel Pipes on the U.S.-Saudi relationship, that I would 40 years later be hailing, you know, be, be saying like the most important relationship in some ways that we have in the world and the relationship we should be deepening and pushing to deepen is with Saudi Arabia. I would have thought you were, were were insane that I would ever say such a thing. But let's just let's just like detail what we're talking about here. Of course, Saudi Arabia over the last ten years has formed an unofficial entente with Israel, stimulated by uh, the common threat from a nuclear Iran. But not just that. I mean, clearly, Mohammed bin Salman sees the relationship with Israel or a relationship with Israel that might be formal, might get more formalized over the course of the next couple of years as as a key to pulling the kingdom of Saudi Arabia out of this um, weird position it's in where it is is, uh, reliant on this one uh, admittedly amazing uh, natural resource, uh, an incredibly valuable natural resource. He wants to... uh, diversify the economy and he wants uh Saudi Arabia to enter uh the sort of the community of na- of 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 modernizing nations in the world and he sees Israel as the great example of this having gone from poverty to high tech and that is a that is maybe the key Amer- that has been a key american goal for half a century and the key to and has been the key to stilling the uh, cauldron of trouble in the Middle East in relation to the Israel, the the problem of Israel. It has we have Israel having an entente with the United Arab Emirates. We have you know f- actual formal deal, kosher restaurants in Dubai, uh, people going and you know like Israelis spending their honeymoons in Dubai, stuff like that. This is all extraordinary stuff and a a key element a key victory 
for American foreign policy. And what are the what does Biden and the Biden people do? One person gets killed in Turkey, and the entire foreign policy of the United States is supposed to pivot in a different direction, even as they want to limit American oil production, which then would make us more reliant, which has made us in turn more reliant on Middle Eastern but, energy. But this is this is what's so interesting about this moment. And and Abe is right to point out that that now now even sort of liberal mainstream media allies are saying that quiet part out loud. I was struck by the headline in the New York Times, which said OPEC move shows the limits of Biden's fist bump diplomacy with the Saudis. Now, that was actually that that's that's much more of a deep burn than you might realize when you realize it's coming from the New York Times, which has run cover for the Biden administration's kind of, oh, this is great. It's just going to be like the Obama years. We're going to call out this evil that the Saudi Arabia, you know, Saudi Arabia does. None of it was real. And it was all it's all been part of this package of, you know, we've got to push green technologies. We've got to limit uh, fossil fuel production in the U.S. And the game is revealed for what it was. It's a game. And they know with stark, stark uh, reality what rising gas prices in the lead up to a midterm election where they're already at a disadvantage is going to mean for the Biden administration for Democrats. So suddenly it's like, oh, my goodness, this we're just showing the limits of the diplomacy. So there's still that tone of the world has once again disappointed Biden and his administration by doing something that Biden didn't want it to do. But they can no longer try to pretend that this was not a failure on the part of an administration in terms of how it handled the Saudis. I mean, the only reason why they wrote that headline is because they're annoyed about Khashoggi. They just right. want to well, stick it to Joe. They just want to stick it to Joe Biden because he but betrayed that's the a tribe change. and the yeah. <laughs> That's it. And they don't care. I mean, they do care about Democrats winning elections, but they don't want us to increase domestic production. They don't want us to get more oil from abroad. They don't want us to have a fossil fuel economy. Right. They're, they're really, they're really annoyed that Joe Biden didn't right. do what they've been trying to get him to do. But that annoyance is a change of tone. I mean, I will say that's their. When it comes to Khashoggi? Well, no, not in terms of Khashoggi. They didn't like the fist bump either, but. No, but I mean, I think this is a very, we're we're in a, you know, um, we're in a very interesting situation. It's like a reverse bill of attainder. Like all of the world's foreign policy is supposed to center circle on or pivot on an admittedly horrific act that happened to a single person in a single place that, you know, is likely was right. Likely, and if they had the slightest yeah. comprehension of how foreign policy is conducted and how nations establish grand strategy and pursue it, they wouldn't pursue this line. They don't understand it. They don't really care about it. They have professional grievances that they're litigating here in a, the most parochial fashion imaginable and then glossing it over with some sort of national import that they don't no, but, fully comprehend. But, but it seems entire- as it's a good pretext. The entirety of the Democratic Party has participated in this in this uh, game uh, with 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 Khashoggi. I mean, Biden himself said Saudi Arabia should be a pariah nation, which yeah, is, and they were primed to that to yeah to take that position during the Obama years, having nothing right. to do with dead journalists, having everything but, to do with realigning right. the region, great, establishing a. a, a Establishing more power for Shiite elements around Iran and demonizing Saudi Arabia was part of that campaign to lay the groundwork for the Iran deal and the subsequent geopolitical alterations in the Middle East that it would usher in. But Abe, let, let's go there because I because I do think that this is this is about this is a long term thing that is happening here and that Obama and Biden, Biden working for Obama from 2008 to 2016 
they did not understand the degree to which their decision to tilt in some fashion or other, and then progressively toward Iran, they did not understand the world historical implications of what it was that they were doing or the consequences. The consequences, as it turns out, in a weird way, were positive. Oddly, because Saudi, because Mohammed bin Salman, a very young man, was shocked into an understanding that the that following an American status quo, which was basically the Saudi uh, diplomacy toward the United States, was was existentially threatening to his country and its future, and that there was only one other country in the world that felt as as he did, or as they did, and that was Israel. And so you have Obama. And the Emirates, a, a, too. And the Emirates, right. But Obama, a, a somebody who loathed Israel, and yes, I'm going to say he loathed Israel. Oh, I'm a t- I love tough love. You know, anyone who says, I have tough love is a, is a hater. That's what tough love is. It's hatred in the form of, it's hatred in the form of, or rage, or, you know, or, 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 um, you know, or or a punishment in the form of claiming, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you, you know, while you beat someone to death, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, he hated Israel. He doesn't like, you know, he he hated the sort of the, the gay, and then he moved, so he sort of like tilted toward Iran, and much of the world changed as a result, and that we don't understand, and clearly Biden doesn't understand, the people around him don't understand, what an epical moment that was for Saudi Arabia and how they're not just going to forget it when a president changes and some guy comes from the Biden, from the Obama, who was in the Obama, and gives you a fist bump two years after he said you should be a pariah. Like, I'm sorry, but no favors are going to be done to you for you. And also the thing about the way the Obama administration went about pursuing the Iran deal, it, it wasn't just that they they were pursuing something that scared Israeli and, and Saudi leadership. It was that they they boxed the the Saudis and Israelis out of out of it entirely. They kept them in the dark. So the two relied on each other. They were this sort of like, hey, do you see what's going on here? Well, I can't. Find, I don't know anything. Do you know? You know, they, yeah. they sort of forced them into this this um, like unbelievably uh, 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 sympathetic relationship, uh, mutually sympathetic relationship, because they were both getting sort of actively screwed in the day-to-day understanding of what was going on too. Right. And even more important from the, from the perspective of this, of this building though, you know, still silent relationship was that every move that Israel took in the form of sabotaging the Iranian nuclear program was a direct aid and comfort to the Saudis. Like it was a form of international diplomacy in the region where it was with the you know Sunni nations that 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 were th- are threatened by Shia by the rise of this you know Shia irredentism, um, you know that 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 Israel did it for itself, but it had the ancillary benefit of providing more security to Saudi Arabia, which is still in the position, I mean the horrifying and scary position of waiting to see what goes on before it develops a nuclear weapon of its own, which is inevitable if we allow Iran to go nuclear. I um, could I just could I also yeah, add that yeah, yeah. To, to to the point of looking back to the Obama administration and looking ahead, the other thing that the Biden administration clearly missed um 
was the alignment that Saudi Arabia has and the interest Saudi Arabia has with China and Russia. So this idea that we could just like former presidents used to just, you know, pick up the phone and treat Saudi Arabia like our personal gas station, that that kind of dismissive uh, way of dealing with with Saudi Arabia hasn't been true for a while. But the Biden administration, in a strange way, brought that back. Right. It was a very, very high handed way of dealing with a country that they whose whose uh, realignment with other nations. And it's and as you said, John, it's it's a, a detente with Israel. It just did not register for the Biden administration. And there's a weird way in which I mean, remember the joke about, you know, the 90s, once it's foreign policy back was Obama said to to. Uh, Mitt Romney during debates, but there's a way in which the Biden administration foreign policy is like the 80s. I mean, it's they're they're just not looking at the Middle East and the way the Middle East has realigned in recent recent decades. But also, you know, in some sense, they're not they're not looking at it in the way that it has been uh, uh, for a long time, which is that you know the way the U.S. Saudi relationship is often char- characterized. It's it's um, it's this sort of transactional alliance where it's we we we, we it's energy for security, right? Um, so you know we we get the fuel, and uh, they have the security. But if we're pre- and that has been the status quo for for a long time. But if we are, and if Biden is, despite going over there and fist bumping, continuing to pursue the Iran deal or had been. Um, that is not providing that is not secure. That is that is the, the opposite. That is that is contributing to a sense of instability for the Saudis. And then we have this, you know, incredibly self-defeating policy that is, you know, fundamentally it's almost sort of religious in scope, which is on the, on the one hand, we want to make we want to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah or whatever. And on the other hand, um, we have we we had spent 13 years developing this remarkable way to limit Saudi and Arab and Venezuela, whatever, oil power through the development of our own natural gas industry from, you know, from uh, hydraulic fracturing. And they slammed the brakes on it. Oh, no. Don't you know, John, that this just isn't market. It's not viable in the market. It takes us so much capital investment to develop these wells and bring them to market. It could take 10 years, quite unlike solar technology or fuel cell technology or just about any other renewable. Those things are market viable. You got to let know. I know. These are capitalists we're talking about here. I know not, nothing has ever been as unviable as fracking because, you know, basically the industry began in 2007 and by 2015, we were almost at energy independence. That's how unviable it was. It took eight years. People were building $6 billion stations on the Gulf of Mexico, export stations. These same, very same Two people, by the way. platforms costing $6 billion each. You know, this is, we're talking about, I live in a city where it takes 30 years to build two miles of subway track and a billion dollars to do that. They built two oil export platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. Capitalism did, <laughs> you know, I saw in, some, in a matter of months, practically. Left-wing hack, and I don't remember who, but they were like, look, in, look at all this, all this industry is coming back to the, you know, the, the Rust Belt, the upper Midwest. We thought it was gone forever. And look at what renewables have done to the manufacturing economy. We're back. And just like you just incepted this 
industry into existence by virtue of federal dollars and you're packing patting yourself on the back yeah and how many people are employed in the fracking industry that were right. not employed previously anyway the whole thing you know like remember that oh it's so expensive to live in south dakota now oh my god people can't find housing in south dakota because suddenly there are hundreds of thousands of people working inside who hadn't been working there before anyway I'm just saying, like, chickens are coming home to roost here politically now. This is very bad for America, obviously. And that's where, you know, you don't want to be like, oh, oh, Biden, you suck and all of that. It's bad. Like, we are, we are, we have been not, not on a downward slope. My friend, David, our friend David Bonson points out that if you exclude food, which is a big exclusion if you exclude it, but the, the two drivers currently of inflation, which remains high, food, housing, and rent, but housing and rent are about to crash if they haven't already crashed, particularly how particularly, you know, purchasing housing as interest rates rise, you know, above well above seven percent um for a 30-year mortgage, like uh, you know, that is um that's bad, bad news. And so in fact, there is there was there have been signs that inflation will break, like could have could break or could have broken. And the Biden administration now finds itself in a position where uh, apparently, you know, apparently now we're back to this most important individual purchase, weekly purchase aside from food for most Americans, you know, who have to drive to work and all of that going from wherever it is now you know three and three thirty or three forty a gallon to above four a gallon again just as people are going to the polls so you know i mean and that's that's bad like inflation is a horrible thing it's a regressive tax it's a nightmare it's terrible and um and I guess, you know, well, people, and, yeah. and can I just say that they've been the Biden administration has been extremely foolhardy about how it has messaged the gas prices, you know, going up and down. It's been said every time the price goes down, they pat themselves on the back. And then when it goes up, it's like, well, it's so complicated. We can't really explain. We're not really responsible. And it's been so blatant and they've done it multiple news cycles now that no one's going to listen to their excuse making when it rises again, which it inevitably will. Um. Anyway, so uh, so that's. uh and of course, all of this flows um, from the um, war in Ukraine. Uh, the 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 hope, or the wish, or the demand, or the fear, the, the hope that somehow the Saudis and the U and the United Arab Emirates were going to agree somehow to keep you know to 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 keep pumping uh, and keep uh, prices stable or low or or you know going on the downward slope because of because of Ukraine and um everything that i am reading now basically says forget us for a minute europe is on the verge of a 1970s britain style economic shock of their and we're talking about from from you know, from Great Britain to Germany and elsewhere. We're talking about high interest rates. We're talking about, you know, um, uh, tightening, uh, you know, and, and high interest rates at a time when energy prices are going to go, you know, stratospherically high for them. 
it's really bad. Like we, it's things are, are, are really, really bad. And I, I don't have any policy implications for that. It's just extremely bad. And this of course, all sort of is related to though, not, 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 wasn't started by the war in Ukraine, but obviously war in Ukraine has made this like five times worse for them because yeah, because, you know, Germany was ready to turn off its, you know, literally shut down its nuclear power plants, um, you know, because uh, because uh, a 16-year-old girl, you know, said they're they're bad. Um, but I mean, so that's what we're looking at, not just us, but we're talking about, you know, our, 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 our largest trading partner going into, you know, going into a disastrous downturn which will have effects on us and then also that question which is you know we're at a point where we really do need to stay resolute and focused on the war and winning the war however you want to slice that and now europe is europe is going to go through a long dark night of the soul about this like what have we gotten ourselves into look what this is costing us look how we're living you know, do we really think that they're going to remain as, you know, emotionally stalwart about what's going on in Ukraine as they have been thus far? That in common, not that we want to go down this road yet again, but that in common with the nuclear threat. Right. Is, you know, yeah. is everyone absolutely freaking out. Yeah. Um, so there, there's this other story in the New York Times, this very peculiar leak uh, that, um, uh, that suggests that uh, American intelligence now believes that the uh, assassination of the daughter of, of the leading Russian nationalist um, uh, who was, uh, was, was done by some kind of a Ukrainian hit squad uh, in Russia. And I, I only bring this up uh, because the story broke in the New York Times yesterday afternoon. They sent it out as a big bullet, breaking news. You know, we have a big story. The Ukrainians did it. Um, and that leads me to the, like, what, who we bono here? Like, who's leaking this and why at this moment? Um, it's interesting because it's like, as things heat up and particularly on the nuclear front, you start wondering whether there are, you know, forces inside the deep state that are looking at where we are and saying, you know, we're, we're making a terrible mistake here and are looking for information that might cause Americans to pull back from their support uh, of the Ukrainian cause. We were talking about this earlier before the mics went on, and my instinct whenever something like this comes out is that it's not some, you know, overstressed bureaucrat within one of the agencies, the agency itself, State Department, who knows, um, you know, pouring over maps and, you know, just beset with uh, anxiety over the state of geopolitics. It's probably something very petty. Somebody did something they weren't supposed to do, made somebody else in the agency look really bad. They have a grievance to litigate and they leaked it to the press to try to advance their position within whatever with a, whatever bureaucracy they're in. The idea that this is somehow dirty pool 
when Wagner group hit squads were sent into Kiev to neutralize the president is strikes me as a, a little wanting and kind of cloying. And I don't actually understand what the what they're trying to get at here. The idea that I don't know this very popular this guy Dugan um, and his daughter was not the target of this attack. It's likely he well, was. Well, they think they think she wasn't. They everybody think, thought this. The at story the time. says everybody said they, this at they the were going at him and he wasn't in the car. Correct. And that's okay. nine ninety percent most likely because this woman is otherwise of very little strategic value. But so is he. He's not a very strategically valuable person. He's an agitator of somebody who talks for a living and says a lot of crazy stuff. Um, you know, and advances the Russian nationalist cause by doing so. So it is was this a a, a a target that was legitimate? You could have an argument about that. Um, but is it is it untoward? Does it flaunt the rules of war? Maybe. But we're also talking about something very closely approaching a genocidal campaign of of systematic extermination and violence that uh, does not comport in any way with any international convention. Um, so the idea here that we're imposing rules of war on this defensive combatant that is under active invasion by a neighboring power with the design to subsume it into a, a, a form of slavery um, strikes me as having you know all your priorities all wrong. But, you know, whenever you anyone wants to make a case against one side in a war, they act as if the mistakes that side made were intentional, uh, that, you know, this is like what they did <clears throat> with the U.S. and Iraq. It's like if we, 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 you know, on those occasions that we killed innocents accidentally, it's like, you know, the U.S. is over there targeting Ira innocent Iraqis, you know, on a right. campaign of, 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 you know, ruthless murder. It's it's. It's just a, um, just a complete, it is a misinformation campaign. Yeah, particularly when we have Russia explicitly saying that it is targeting civilians and they, they just fired, they just had, you know, used Iranian drones to fire, you know, sort of indiscriminately on 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 some places deep from, in yes deep from in the Ukraine. very beginning of this conflict russia has has violated all human rights norms they've used rape as a weapon of war they have killed innocent children they have targeted uh all these domestic sites you know shopping malls grocery mm -hmm. stores homes they have done that deliberately they have done that with absolutely no concern at all about the rules of war so yeah I, th so this... the question is is a cheerleader for that sort of thing a legitimate target somebody who's actively talking his nation and he has the ears of the Kremlin who's actively talking his nation into a suicidal campaign of nuclear apocalypse. Like, this is the sort of stuff he cheers for. He's very nihilistic. Um, yeah. Is that a legitimate target in a campaign like this, a campaign of survival? I say yes. Yeah, he's a propagandist. <laughs> I, I think as, as far as I know, it's unclear exactly if there is any or to what extent there is a relationship uh, between he, between uh, Dugan and Putin here. Um, there's clearly a relationship between whether he's whether he's Putin's cat's paw or he's, right. you know, more like, you know, you know, he's more like his, uh, you know, f uh, one American network or something like that. You know, uh, we also have different conceptions of what, you know, what is acceptable speech in times of crises like this because it's right. codified in the constitution you know the the wilson administration notwithstanding um but that, they don't see it that way over there 
No, and uh, anyway, we don't know what the circumstance. We don't know what the. All we know now is this idea that it was a Ukrainian hit squad. Nobody knows who. No one knows who ordered it. You know, it, it, elements within the the Ukrainian government. Blah blah blah. You know, did Zelensky? Know, you know, and all of this is just a way of. Um, I mean, what strikes me is as I as I look at uh, Twitter, which I read, although I do not post on a daily basis, um, the world of people who are who are, you know, basically just pumping relentlessly against our support for Ukraine in this war um, aren't the readers of the New York Times. They are, without, you know, with MAGA, the exception of Tucker Carlson, who I'm sure reads no, no. reads cover to cover. Yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean. They're not they're not the subscribers of the New York. They're not the audience that the New York Times is seeking to get its advantage with. It is MAGA and you know the intellectual far right and MAGA and people like that who are saying, you know, it's like they're they're using this rhetoric of like. I don't know, the other, like, uh, Lindsey Graham tweeted something out about what we should, you know, how we should handle Donbass or something like that. And this politics editor at uh, at Breitbart is like, why is he talking about Donbass instead of about, you know, what Americans need? You know, that that whole line, like, it, it called him dumb-dumb or something, called Graham dumb-dumb or something like that. It was sort of fascinating um, because, you know, you do have this weird thing where the natural disposition of the left and liberals and the left would be to be very oppositional toward this war, right? Because uh, wars don't go well for Americans and we don't let, you know, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we, blah, blah, blah. And they haven't been like this, but um, there's got to be a big temptation in some quarters to start moving in that direction right we're staining this ukrainian effort or we are making things more dangerous using our high mars or whatever it is we are we are pushing this to a place where it shouldn't go uh this is a wonderful you know david and goliath war of national liberation from you know from a from an invading army and we're we're ruining it somehow but and we're ruining ourselves. But what we haven't seen yet, thankfully, and this is like what to look out for, is any of the supporters of our efforts here turn against it. The, 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 the people who have been saying the kinds of things you're saying have essentially been saying them the whole time. Right. Right. Um, we're not seeing Lindsey Graham, for example, turn around yeah. and, and say, you know, at right. this point, we have to reassess. For I, from facts change on the ground, you have to you have to reassess, and we have to. Yeah. We haven't seen that. We haven't, but that's what I'm saying. We could see, right? So we could see. That's why I'm wondering if this New York Times story. I don't want to read too much into it. I'm just saying that it's a kind of it's a weird thing. Like you could imagine, three months ago, they might not have published it, even if they got the scoop somehow. There, they would have said, "This is not, you know, this is badly timed," or you know, blah blah. I don't know, whatever, whatever they might have said, or where they would have gone to the administration for comment, and you know, Jake Sullivan would have called them back and said, "It's very important that you not publish this yet." Sources and methods, I don't know, whatever, whatever they would say in order to keep keep it quiet. But 
I'm just saying like it's one it's a, like a data point or maybe an originating data point that if th this does become an increasingly controversial conflict in the United States, we may look at this story as as the moment at which liberal public opinion began to get increasingly discomfited. I'm talking about radical public opinion because you do have this kind of confluence between the MAGA right and then these kind of lunatic intercept, you know, communist sympathizers who are, you know, who are who are advocating basically essentially advocating for Russia. <laughs> Neocoms. <laughs> That's good. That's good. You know what else is good? <clears throat> By the way, you know what else is good? Policy genius. Policy genius is good. And I need to talk to you about policy genius as soon as I can find my copy. Okay, look, policy genius helps you with life insurance. We hope you never leave. We all hope we don't need life insurance. But, you know, when we're gone, mortgage payments, childcare, other expenses don't disappear. And life insurance or your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. And it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easier to compare life insurance quotes than almost any other method from top companies like AIG and Prudential and just a few clicks to find your lowest price with Policy Genius. You can find life insurance policies that start at just $17 per month for $500,000 worth of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees. Your personal info is private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link what, Click the link there to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right. Um, so much more else to talk about. I don't even know where to go. Um, here's something that surprised me. Um, so uh, a court somewhere or other yesterday, uh, uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, ruled that uh, the DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, is unconstitutional and barred the Biden administration from enrolling new applicants. I had thought that this was settled, but apparently it's not like this is what we're in now seven years since the since uh, since DACA was announced and then basically almost instantly stayed. And I don't think it's ever been in place. Um, although there are 800,000 who are current beneficiaries of the program who are can continue being shielded from deportation, according to our friends at the dispatch. As the lower court reviews the Departments of Homeland Security's final rule attempting to codify DACA into federal regulation, but the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the lower court's ruling that DACA was unconstitutional. DACA, of course, is the original, uh, you know, thing that uh, things like the, uh, or not quite the original, but one of the first things that most notable things that leads inexorably to the, um, to the 
student loan forgiveness debt transfer thing, right? Because it, DACA was Obama, you know, essentially writing legislation <laughs> in the form of executive action and changing immigration law, uh, you know, sitting in his chair with his pen and his phone. Uh, anybody have any thoughts about this? Long time coming. <laughs> Again, I mean, so long coming years. that I thought it had already come. Yeah, That's... same here. I remember where I was actually when this was struck down all those many years ago. Really? Um, well, injunct it, I suppose. No, but imposed. where were you? Uh, I was on the streets outside of Jersey City where uh, my apartment was. My son uh-huh. had not yet been born, but he was coming. Uh-huh. And that's my first son. And I was walking my dog. And I forget who I, I just tweeted about it because we didn't have a text thread at that time. Uh-huh. I wasn't working for you guys yet. But yeah, very glad that I don't have to tweet my every thought now. I could just text about it. Um. Anyway, can I? One thing that this will likely uh, and predictably uh, create is another round of social media hand wringing by DACA advocates. You know that one thing that they have been very good at doing over the years since Obama announced this program, um, this unconstitutional program, is to get them get get the kids affected front and center. Right. So you're a horrible, mean, cruel human being as a Republican, if you say, you know, this is not the way we do things in this country with regard to immigration, they just put a child or a young adult in front of the camera who says, this is unfair to me. Like, I deserve to be here. How dare you? I didn't have a choice, et cetera, et cetera. That will be the narrative again. But I wonder if the response by the public is going to be the same, given how much more the crisis at the border has escalated, how many more people are coming across the border in a way that clearly the Biden administration cannot handle and has no plans to handle. So I I remember the initial uh, DACA response as being, I, I mean, I myself would listen to these kids' stories and go, this is horrible. Like they, they didn't choose to be brought across the border illegal. That was their parents' decision. We have to find a way to, to deal with this. But it's become its own advocacy industry now in a way that has aligned in many cases with the open borders policy type. So that's, I think, going to harm those DACA kids if they actually want to find some middle ground because the open borders uh, types have see lump those kids in with everybody else and i think that does them a disservice so this may be a little simplistic because not not a lawyer and i don't you know have any legal credentials but it does give you a clue as to where some of biden's executive actions are going because joe uh, barack obama said often ahead of this 2014 i guess um daca uh executive action that he had no authority to do this no constitutional power to do this the courts agreed he said it 27 times as i recall joe biden admitted that he had no constitutional authority to extend the uh, moratorium on evictions. Courts agreed. Um, Joe Biden has said very often, and Nancy Pelosi has echoed this, that uh, there's no authority to um, uh, transfer the debt assumed by uh, borrowers in private institutions for student loans onto the taxpayer's uh, shoulders. My bet is that the courts will agree. Look, What's interesting is I mean, what Christine says is right that under 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 sane and rational normal circumstances, um, had Obama been in a position, everybody blames the Republicans for this, but in this case, I do not. Had had he been in a position to have a rational relationship with the Senate and the House on this issue, in relation to this issue, separating out. DACA from all other immigration issues, saying we have this very specific 
It's a unique population of unique folks, yeah. population of people who are Americans by any understanding of the of, of, of what we consider Americans who have no relation to the country in which they are of which they are nominally citizens and who are at net a, a benefit of both of this country. And we need to pull this out and deal with it as its own little thing. We're not talking about illegal immigration. We're not talking about chain migration. We're not talking about anything other than these kids and their status. But he could not do that. He could not find the way to separate that out and say, we're just going to deal with this alone. And therefore, he then, because he merged it and mixed it, intermixed it, as Christine was saying, with other issues relating to immigration, nothing was able to be done. Trump wanted to make some kind of an arrangement on on DACA, on the DACA kids in 2017. And it was just too far gone because doing so would have looked like, in his view, a capitulation to these, you know, sort of like immigration, the immigration industry, right? The illegal immigration industry. And he kind of chickened out at the last minute from from putting his imprimatur on a deal on DACA. But here's something I just wanted to share with you guys from my paper, the New York Post, this morning. An upstate New York mayor ripped into President Biden and his team after dozens of migrant kids were secretly flown to his small town by the feds last week, telling the Post this seems clandestine. At least two migrant flights have touched down at Orange County Airport in Montgomery, New York, from El Paso, Texas, in recent weeks, according to officials. The latest flight, which landed last Friday night, was carrying 25 minors, ranging between 13 and 18 years of age, who are quickly shipped off to 12 locations, including children's homes and shelters scattered across the tri-state and New York City suburban areas. Oh, really? This has that, been going on since the very beginning of the Biden yeah, administration, these yeah. flights. Yes. Yeah, I mean, okay, so there's no one named Perla saying, do you want to get on this plane and go somewhere? You know, um, if I don't see 25 stories about this in the, you know, like in the New York Times, I mean, the Biden administration okay, but is shipping they, people off secretly. Human trafficking. But, without, they, but they, look, the argument, I'll play devil's advocate the, here. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll play devil's advocate. The argument okay. for those on the left defending this kind of policy, even though it does, I mean, the what the, my, my, you all know my liberal friends, I have these discussions with them. They are at least a little sheepish about this because they don't want to acknowledge it. And there's a reason these flights are landing at two in the morning at tiny regional airports. It's because they don't, the optics are bad, right? But what they say is, Federal law requires them to, to deal with minors in a particular way, and they have to the, the facilities at the border are now so overcrowded in dealing with the minors, they have to put them in safe spaces around the country that can handle children because the because the protections and the and the requirements for handling these children, or especially if they come unaccompanied, are different than the ones. So so they will not. They don't like the policy if you really get them to, to, to be truthful. But what they'll say is at least Biden isn't just dumping them somewhere that doesn't have the facilities to handle them like all these stunt governors are. So that's the sort of it is not a persuasive argument, in my opinion, but it is the argument that's made. I know, because, you know, those people who went to Martha's Vineyard, what they really wanted to do was stay under a bridge in El Paso. Because that would be really great. 
You know, I know they found two people who said, you know, oh, it took him a Mo. week and a half. It took him a week and a half and a team of immigration activist attorneys to find somebody who was willing to criticize the thing. It's like that, for it's a week, like, there was just was like every story was where replete I with am. folks who were like, yes, thank you. So we're thrilled that we have the opportunity to go exactly where we wanted to go in this country for free. Yeah, there's water. I don't know where I am. There's water, said somebody to the New York Times. That was my great. That was my favorite part was like, there's water. Oh, OK. There wasn't water when you were like coming up from Venezuela. There wasn't water. You didn't have to like cross rivers, you know, terrible. That's terrible the other thing, which is hilarious. We haven't gotten to this because we were talking about yeah. the other aspect of the um, uh, freak out over oil. But we didn't mention this and we should that there was this leak yesterday in the press that the Obama or Biden administration rather is trying to uh, bring the Maduro regime back in from the cold. Now there are no details about this. Nothing's been worked out per se, but the initiative here is to uh, reintegrate the Maduro regime in Venezuela into the international economy. So Sitco can start pumping some more oil and start sending it to us so we can refine it and ease some pressure on the, on the consumers at the pump. Um, and it's just a float and, you know, maybe it's a float to kill it. Who knows? But uh, there was, you know, there was a lot of talk in the commentariat about how Ron DeSantis had destroyed the Republican Party's chances in South Florida because of how cruel he was to these Venezuelan migrants who he ab absconded with from Texas and then shipped off to Massachusetts just to make a political statement. Um, yeah, I don't I really think if you put these two issues on balance, uh, the normalization of this criminal regime that murdered your grandfather or the guy who gave, you know, somebody you don't know who shares your nationality a free ticket to Nantucket. Uh, I don't think it's going to register. Uh, look, everything is is totally crazy. And I think I just wanted to add that the polling, nothing could be crazier than the polling at the moment, because every issue poll uh, is heading directly into the Republican sweet spot. Abortion is receding as as a as a top issue in almost every poll. Crime is rising as the second leading issue next to inflation. Uh, and, you know, in state after state, uh, you know, uh, Fetterman and Oz are now close to tied. Similarly, with um, Barnes and Johnson in uh, in in Wisconsin, all the portents are there for the end of the Democratic surge and the beginning of the Republican kind of coming home and the independents coming to Republicans. But other parts of this are, and oh, and Biden's numbers are falling. Biden's uh, Biden's numbers are now, you know, around 41. They were rising up to 44 in the polling aggregate. And yet, you know, you still have generic ballots saying that people want Democrats more than Republicans in their districts. And I, I don't know, like uh, if this and you add the you add the response to the to the to the OPEC plus deal. Uh, I don't think that the White House thinks that things are going their way, but you're just not going to hear that for the next two or three weeks because people do not. They're terrified, I think, uh, in the liberal media, they are terrified of creating a, a stampede to the exits by saying, oh, it really looks like things are turning the Republicans way. Then Democrats get depressed, then their enthusiasm craters. Can I just say what, if yeah. from my personal experience? So I wrote a piece a month ago for MSNBC talking about how the uh, 
I, you know, relax. Dem Democrats have got a, a very heady experience in August and they let it go to their heads and they envisioned this whole the red wave is a red rip ripple and maybe even we'll keep the house and, you know, this like, irrational exuberance. Like, slow down. MSNBC has been tweeting this piece out for a month. And the only reason I know this is because I am bombarded on a semi regular basis with regular readers of this website who assume that this is a psychological operation on the part of MSNBC to depress the vote, to, to anger them, to, uh, to you know, increase Republicans. Like, it's very strange, but they do have this idea that you should all be on the same team, but regardless, you know, that's just media illiteracy. Nevertheless, it's getting engagement. It's getting readership because not many people in these sites are saying this sort of thing. So they say, what the hell? How could that possibly be? I think they genuinely, in their intellectual silos, closeted as they are, do not encounter anybody who says, well, Republicans are actually probably still going to do pretty well. Look, if we return to the Herschel Walker story for a second. So we're now two days or three days since the since the you know the emergence of this story, uh, which, as I thought, was going to have a second and third day to it, right? So the second day aspect of the abortion story is that the woman whose abortion he procured with money is the mother of another of his children. Um, they held they withheld that detail. <laughs> For a day, just you know, this is how you this is how you roll out. You keep a story going as you add a detail every day. So who knows? Which what also which, which allowed that. gave him the opportunity to say, I don't know. Who, I don't know this woman. Yeah. So he said, who is it? I'm going to sue. And she's like, well, I'm the mother of your child. And then she then said something like, maybe he doesn't know who I am because there are so many of us. Which is pretty harsh, but like even there, it's very important so there's all this like, why aren't Republicans turning on Herschel Walker? And it's which, by the way, is fascinating to me because I can see why a pro-lifer would be saying, why aren't Republicans turning on Herschel Walker? I don't see how the party that is advocating for abortion on demand can turn around and say it's outrageous that Herschel Walker isn't resigning from the race because he paid someone. I mean, it to is have an abortion. It's it's dueling hypocrisies here. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Democrats right. don't really care about any of this. But yeah, we were talking about what's the rationalization that that pro-lifers will engage in the other day, because it was like, well, Trump, you know, Trump gave you the presidency. What does Herschel Walker gives you? And the answer yeah. is Herschel Walker gives you the Senate. And that is the irrationalization. You had okay. Dana Lash it's the not... other day saying, I don't care if he killed bald right. eagles as long as he yeah. gives us the Senate, which which right. is bad for the pro-life movement. Because Very if they bad go, for if the they go full animal right. farm and append taxpayer funded onto what had been an inviolable prescription against abortion, then it becomes something less than a righteous moral crusade. I agree with you, but I'm, I'm trying to support your point here, which is that saying to people, okay, you're voting in a hinge election that may, may decide the control of the Senate. We've just dumped a really rich, thick piece of oppo on you that is going to make you feel uncomfortable about the vote that you are casting. But that those people in Georgia may not still vote for Herschel Walker because on balance, they have no reason not to vote for Herschel Walker because they do want Republicans in control of the Senate or they don't want Biden to have and Democrats to have control of the Senate. And that's what the binary choice thing is all about. Like, and that's what Democrats find can find it almost impossible to cope with is they're like, 
we gave you what you wanted. I mean, we gave you the thing that was supposed to be the poison pill that is going to kill this guy off. And in better in a in a country with a better moral compass and a Republican Party with a moral compass at all, that might really be the case. But at the same time, they better say, I don't want this stroke victim go who can't who is a phasic and doesn't remember words when he's giving speeches and says the Eagles beat the are better than the Eagles when he was supposed to say the Eagles are better than the Steelers. So it's bad that Herschel Walker, I don't mean to do whataboutism, but Herschel Walker should quit because he, or, you know, you shouldn't vote for him because he did this bad thing. And yet you should drag yourself on, on broken glass to elect a clearly inappropriate person, medically, you know, uh, a cognitively inappropriate person to the Senate. Well, and even setting aside Fetterman's uh, physical challenges, there were plenty of ideological uh, uh, red lines there that that true progressives should have should have sort of hesitated to vote for him. Mainly that he remember he chased down an innocent black man and put, held him at gunpoint because he and thought then he, was he a defaced criminal. he defaced this business apparently thinking that it was mob controlled or something but he actually vandalized he vandalized a business in some neighborhood that he wore wherever the hell he was and then gave an interview to a local reporter about it yeah so anyway (laughs) yeah so anyway could not support himself as a grown man like that i'm sorry but for me as a voter that would be it i'm like you cannot support yourself and you're pushing 40 like come on (laughs) but but i'm just saying that the accusation that the pro-life movement and pro-lifers are selling their you know their patrimony for a mess of pottage is real and you know and you don't recover very readily or easily from something like this in my view, when you when you sell yourself this way, but uh, getting lectures from Democrats on this when they support abortion on the one hand and are supporting a guy who is a major stroke, you know, who is somebody who seems to have major cognitive problems for but the even, Senate. E- even the argument that Walker is going to be a useful uh, uh, fighter in the Senate for the GOP doesn't scan with me. He's a Trumpy type meaning he's going to go to the Senate for himself. So it's not clear at all that he's actually going to fall into line and do what the party wants him to do and listen to the leadership. And and I mean, he strikes me as someone who could go completely rogue on issues that actually do matter to Republicans. I mean, I think that's a very interesting point. And that's, you know, and again, who knows what a Republican is anymore? That's part of the that's part of the problem. But I think, you know, the other thing that's happening again, back to the the fact that you're not going to hear unless it's really unmistakable, unless the numbers just turn all at once in every category. But, you know, Blake Masters, who was who looked like he was complete toast, is now in striking distance of Mark Kelly in Arizona. Now, Kelly in the poll where he where where Masters is down to, Kelly is over 50, which is so being over 50 is like the sweetest spot you can be in if you're running, you know, in polling. Like if as long as you're over 50, that means that your margin of error could be as high. You could be as high as 55, 54, 55. And then you're just, you know, you're, you're running away with it. Um, But he's down too. Now that could be an outlier. This could not be real. He's got no money. I don't know why he has no money because he's rich, but he's not spending any money. And uh, and Kelly is outspending him ten to one or twenty to one or something like that. Um, 
still, uh, you know, that's another data point here that stuff is happening. And this lunatic in New Hampshire, Bolduck, maybe he's not a lunatic. Maybe he only ran as a lunatic and he's less lunatic because he was pulling back from some of his more lunatic statements and things. But he's only down six. And that's a state that, you know, the sitting senator, Maggie Hassan, won by a thousand votes. And now she won over a, a genuinely great Republican candidate, the sitting senator, uh, Kelly Ayotte, who is an impressive person and, you know, was clearly liked in New Hampshire. New Hampshire's just, you know, was just up for, you know, it was a purple state up for grabs. But... um Six points is recover. Like, we don't know what that means. So stuff is happening. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to stop happening. And be back with you uh, tomorrow. Right? We're all back tomorrow. Okay. Don't put it to a vote. We'll never know what our listeners... <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So for Abe Christina No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.